Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper. And I'm the other host, Aaron Maté. How are you, Katie? Good, you? I'm great. I'm great. And as always, you can go to usefulidiots.substack.com to get bonus content, sign up for our Thursday throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness, and to take part in the Absurd Arena where you can interact with us and other Useful Idiots. So Wilson, what do we have this week from the Absurd Arena? So the Absurd Arena seems to be growing darker every week people getting a little bit more discouraged. Uh, and this week, Useful Idiots discussed the urge to disconnect themselves completely from politics because it appears to be hopeless, from corrupt politicians to corporate control to ceaseless fighting on Twitter. But a couple Useful Idiots like Martin Eddy, Foggy Zwoggle, Todd Smith, and Jonathan Vasquez also shared the hope that keeps them holding on. And these are things like the movements outside of the U.S., like in South America and Claire Daly and McWallace rebellious music, the promise of real face-to-face time spent with others that actually strengthens relationships, and all of the amazing, profound, funny voices out here in this technocratic hellscape wilderness. So, Katie and Aaron, what hope do you have for a future outside of this corporate technocratic hole that we're in? Well, I think that um, one of the comments that we just heard about, um, what was it, funny voices? Yeah. I I mean, uh, that gives me hope. And, uh, I, I like to think that we are part of that. So I, I would say without sounding self-centered, uh, we give me hope. I give myself hope. Aaron gives me hope. <laughs> this show gives me hope. And the fact that this show gives other people hope gives me hope. Listening to Chuck Todd every week gives me hope because mm. there's no way we can get any lower than this. Right. Than having people like that as among our major cultural figures, our major faces of journalism. It's got to get better. It's got to get better. Yeah. But honestly, what really gives me hope is when I've had the privilege to go around the world and see people who are really struggling, living in terrible conditions, like in the Gaza Strip or in Syria, countries under medieval sanctions, and people who find a way to be resilient. And the human capacity to be resilient and to heal is endless. And that's what gives me hope. Yeah. Children give me hope. They're so cute. There's a great song about that by Whitney Houston. Um called The Greatest Love of All, where the first line is, she says, I believe the children are the future. So go to that song too for hope, everybody. That's good. That's yeah, keep them yeah. well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess yeah. inside. Yeah. Incidentally, fun fact, here's some Canadian trivia. That song's melody is a complete ripoff of Gordon Lightfoot, who was a Canadian singer-songwriter legend. And he has a song called If You Could Read My Mind. And if you go and compare those two melodies, you'll see it's whoever wrote Greatest Love of All. This is not Whitney's fault because she didn't write it. Ripped off Gordon Lightfoot. And I believe Gordon Lightfoot won that in court. Uh, Interesting. You mean if you could read my mind, what a tale that one? Wow. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to do, I'll have to do an experiment later with that. Like there's a part in The Greatest of All where she goes, I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow. And there's a part in If You Could Read My Mind where he says, if this, oh, uh, I know what it is. It's I don't know where we went wrong, but the feet and tongue, and I just didn't get it. There you go. Right. There you go. That's it. You nailed wow. it. So that right there, blatant ripoff of Gordon Lightfoot, and he got what's his, or hopefully got what's yeah. his in court. Hopefully, because, yeah. Because uh, that was a great song, and his intellectual property was stolen. So a big win for Canada right there, everybody. Wow. Well, going back to the absurd arena question, what gives me hope is the fact that we're all singing the same melody, even when we're copying each other. So you're right. Let's take hope from intellectual property theft. Yeah. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, copying is the highest form of flattery. There we go. Plagiarism is the highest form of flattery, kind of. Yeah. There we go. There we go. Wow, that was a great chat. That gave me hope. Seeing how we can just <laughs> turn to music. And you're a huge Whitney fan, by the way. I just have to say, you're a huge Whitney fan. So the fact that you would even go near something critical of her uh really gives me hope that you're an intellectually honest person well, thanks, i'm glad guys. to co-host with well thank you thank you uh well let's get to our four food groups and for democrats suck there's a major thing happening right now in the house so big re- big revolt from a group of house rebels they held out refusing to vote for kevin mccarthy through 15 rounds of voting until he caved to their demands and one of those demands was the creation of a new church committee to investigate the investigators, to investigate U.S. intelligence agencies who Republicans believe have been very partisan in recent years, primarily with the Russia investigation against uh, President Trump. Well, here is someone who was not happy about this. His name is Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff is, you know, 
we're big fans of his on our show because he's given us a lot of material. And here he delivers again. And Adam Schiff is going to get up on the House floor and say why he's very mad about this new church committee put on by Republicans. And a church committee, can you explain what, what that means, Aaron? Yeah, the church committee uh, was a committee a community in the 70s by Senator Frank Church. And basically it was formed to investigate U.S. intelligence uh, because of a series of abuses that they committed primarily domestically. And among the revelations that were unearthed by the church committee were the machinations of COINTELPRO, where the U.S. intelligence was used to basically spy and undermine and target dissidents at home. And it led to a series of, yeah, and this led to a series of reforms and the creation of more oversight in Congress, but that in recent decades has been completely watered down. So the hope here, if you're putting the the best spin possible on this new committee, is that it will bring some accountability to U.S. intelligence, of course, because this is partisan. There's very much the threat that this could just be a partisan exercise and there won't be any serious oversight. But certainly Adam Schiff is not happy about the idea of any oversight whatsoever. And here he is on the House floor. Last time Republicans were in charge of the House, Kevin McCarthy pushed to form another bogus select committee, that one on Benghazi. He did so as he admitted to tear down Hillary Clinton's numbers, a patently political exercise. Now McCarthy is at it again, pushed into forming this bogus subcommittee by the QAnon members of his own conference. Now he sacrificed a lot in his bid for speaker. That was his choice. But now the American people are going to pay the price in the form of a body blow to our national security. You can hear how upset he is in his voice. His voice is breaking. He's Adam Schiff is is upset about this. Now, uh, two points here. First of all, Schiff actually has a point. I will concede this when he talks about how the Benghazi committee was partisan and was just about hurting Hillary Clinton's election prospects. There's truth to that. And part of the reason is because Republicans on that committee refused to actually go after the real story in Benghazi. Benghazi is, of course, where U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens was killed, along with several other U.S. officials. And Republicans used that committee to basically blame Hillary Clinton for that, for the security failures there. But that wasn't the real scandal of Benghazi. The real scandal of Benghazi was what Christopher Stevens was doing in Benghazi. And what was he doing? He was using the U.S. consulate there to funnel weapons from Gaddafi's stockpile to Syria to fund sectarian death squads dominated by al-Qaeda. That was the real scandal. That's actually what led to Christopher Stevens' being killed. And Republicans, because they refused to actually do real oversight, didn't go there. They got there a little bit, but then they backed off. So to the extent Schiff is talking about Benghazi as being too partisan, he is correct because they were too focused on what they could do to hurt Hillary rather than focused on what the real scandal was in Benghazi that could be blamed not just on Hillary, but on the entire U.S. government, including the CIA, which was running that gun running program to Syria. But what's funny about Schiff complaining about abusing the intelligence committee and abusing the correctional committees to uh, for partisan purposes is that what happened when he was the head of the House Intelligence Committee? Well, he buried evidence that exposed Russiagate as a fraud. For example, the admission of CrowdStrike, this private firm that first accused Russia of hacking the DNC. CrowdStrike testified to Congress that they had no evidence of Russian hacking. Schiff buried that testimony for more than two years. So that's an example of what he did. And meanwhile, as he's denouncing QAnon, he used his position to promote BlueAnon, which was based on a conspiracy theory that Trump was being blackmailed by Russia. Just as a flashback of what Schiff did, this is when he went on national television and claimed that in his position on the House Intelligence Committee, he had seen secret evidence of Trump-Russia collusion that he just couldn't tell us about yet. It's a circum. All you have right now is a circumstantial case. Uh, actually, no, Chuck. Uh, I, I can tell you that the case is more than that, uh, and I can't go into the particulars. But there is more than circumstantial evidence now. So, um, again, I think so you have Clapper, seen direct evidence of collusion. Uh, I don't want to go into specifics, but I will say that there is evidence that is not circumstantial, uh, and uh, and is very much worthy of investigation. So. Uh, that is what we ought to do. Where did that evidence go? Yeah, well, it didn't exist because he was a member of a cult called Blue Anon, which believed in this conspiracy theory that Trump was in cahoots with Russia. And now he's denouncing what he calls the QAnon caucus. 
So it's fitting. It's really come full circle. And he might be right that this could just be completely partisan and not do any real oversight. But I think the idea of having some oversight after intelligence agencies have been weaponized is a good idea. And we'll see where it goes. And I'm personally enjoying the rift that is currently unfolding. All right. Well, uh, Democrats do indeed suck. And uh, my Republican suck also is related to the changing of the guards that's happening right now. So People probably know because we discussed this. We discussed this on Monday morning. But part of the agreement that's being discussed by uh, newly uh, newly sworn in uh, Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, is capping fiscal year 2024 discretionary spending across governments at 2022 levels. And national defense spending, uh, which primarily funds the Pentagon, was about $782 billion in fiscal year 2022 and rose $75 billion to $857 billion in fiscal year 2023. So uh, some people are not happy about that. Uh, Hawks from both parties. Liz Cheney is someone who's not happy about that. So she tweeted out an article uh, and the article's headline is McCarthy's emerging speakers deal tees up $75 billion defense cut. And she tweeted out, Ronald Reagan taught us that weakness is provocative. China and Russia are watching. If GOP leader agrees to weaken our national defense for his own personal gain, that will be his legacy and our nation will suffer. I like that for a couple of reasons. One is she's praising Ronald Reagan, who big fan of Ronald Reagan at the show. We love the Gipper. She's just overtly saying that, you know, we should not uh, cut defense spending, which isn't that surprising. There's a lot of bipartisan consensus around this. And of course, she is saying that uh, weakness is provocative, not as in provocative in a sexy way, but that it'll provoke foreign uh, adversarial nations to attack us. China and Russia are watching. So her argument is that by uh, slashing or not even slashing, I mean, but just slightly reducing defense spending. Pentagon spending, Russia and China will be watching and they will probably invade or something. The Russians and the Chinese have been waiting for that sign of weakness right. to invade. And now they've gotten it with a potential cut of $75 billion and they'll be storming the beaches of the U.S. coast yeah. any minute it'll, now. It'll weakness be January 6th, but Russian Chinese January 6th. There we go. There we go. Weakness is provocative sounds like incel talk. Like that sounds like something you would yeah, read right. in a... Uh, one of these, like, uh, you know, how to pick up ladies books or something like that. Weak, this is provocative. So make them look weak or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or weakness being bad. So you got to be strong if it's for the yeah. men. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. But also it's like, if, if, if like one of your, t- anyway, the point is, it just sounds, it sounds weird. <laughs> it sounds yeah, it sounds weird. weird. Yeah. You never want to yeah. sound like, like an incel. No, definitely not. But hey, yeah. Cheney, is not known for thinking about how they come off. We should do that. We should do who said it, uh, Cheney or an incel. Mm. It'll be a fun trivia game. Yeah. <laughs> Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Okay. For isn't that weird? We have... uh a bombshell coming out of Prince Harry's new memoir. And for those who haven't been following, Prince Harry of the royal family in the UK is beginning a lot of attention. Wait, are you recently. doing this one? Are you doing the Nazi one? No, I'm doing it. I'm doing one about it's about Afghanistan. Oh, okay. We're both doing Prince Harry. Okay, cool. Keep going. Sorry. So Prince Harry of the royal family in the UK is beginning a lot of attention. Him and his wife, Meghan Markle, did a Netflix series that I'm pretty sure they produced themselves. Uh, but it was kind of billed as a tell-all of their time inside the royal family and about how victimized they were. Well, now Prince Harry, continuing with his sprawling media empire, has a new memoir out. And check out what he reveals in it. This is this is pretty wild. So here's the tweet from Declassified UK, which is the website of previous useful idiots guest Matt Kennard. It says this, Prince Harry has reportedly disclosed in his new autobiography that he killed 25 people while an Apache attack helicopter pilot in Afghanistan. Harry reportedly writes he is not embarrassed of the killings as he didn't see the victims as people, but as, quote, chess pieces. 
Wow. wow. Who could have seen that coming? Prince Harry is a cold-blooded battlefield killer. Imperialist. He's talking about people as chess pieces. I mean, the imperialist part, I could see. I mean, after all, he is a royal. And he right. did serve well, I was being sarcastic, but I, I see what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, 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 definitely. Who could have thought? But, man, that's cold. And the question is, I wonder, the question I wonder is, do you think he's telling the truth? Like, is he, or is he just trying to act t- like a tough guy? Right. I mean, weakness is provocative, as we've learned. Yes, that's Maybe right. he's saying that to keep away the Chinese and um, Russians. Yes. Or Either the way, Afghans. Or the Afghans, right. Either way, it's just such a terrible thing to say. I mean, I if he, had, if he said I was wrong because I didn't see them as human beings, but chess um, pieces, that would be one thing. But it doesn't seem like he's expressing any remorse. No, he's proud of it. And I question it because I was under the impression that he was kept far away from any kind of fighting because, of course, he's a member of the royal family. Whenever, whenever you have a VIP right. in the battlefield, you don't send them off to battle because if they something happens to them, that would be deeply embarrassing for the warring government. So I question this, but hey, Prince Harry, he is being vulnerable these days. He's talking about changing the royal family. He's kind of billed as like the woke member of the royal family. So maybe uh, this is part of his redemption tour or his healing tour. But again, in the process, he's not showing any remorse. So I just find the whole thing pretty, pretty sketchy and minimum very weird. And look, luckily, there's so much good stuff in Prince Terry's new uh, memoir media tour that we have more in uh, for Isn't That Terrible? Yeah. So for Isn't That Terrible, I have a kind of it's it's pretty it's kind of entertaining, but I have a I have a very interesting uh, terrible. It's very close to my heart. So just so people know, this this memoir is called Spare and it's called Spare because one of the allegations he makes in this memoir, parts of which have been leaked, is that um his father, who was then Prince Charles, of course, he's now King Charles, but his father referred to him as a spare, meaning uh, a spare heir, because he already had Prince, he already had William, right? So he already had an heir, but I guess if anything happened to William, he would have Harry. So he called him his spare, according to Harry. Uh, he, he reveals all sorts of other things, like uh, he uh, apparently, uh, Charles didn't hug Harry after Princess Diana died. Apparently his brother physically attacked him. But he also kind of blames his brother for making him dress up as a Nazi. Now, I don't know if you guys remember this, but uh, when Prince Harry was 20, back in 2005, he went to a party his friend was throwing, and the party had a theme. It was a costume party. The theme was uh, native and colonial. Okay? So do you remember when this happened and he got into some trouble? Because literally there was an image of him wearing a Nazi swastika and a, do, a Nazi yeah. outfit. Okay. So here's Harry the Nazi, um, Princess Swastika outfit at party. This was on the cover of The Sun, the British uh, newspaper, The Sun. And he actually wound up having to go to Auschwitz to apologize. What what we now know is that he was encouraged to dress up as a Nazi by his brother. So he apparently was choosing between a a pilot or a Nazi. And according to this memoir, I phoned Willie and Kate, Kate Middleton, um, Willie's wife, I guess at that time, wife or girlfriend, I'm not sure. I phoned Willie and Kate, asked what they thought. Nazi uniform, they said. And then apparently when he went home and tried on the outfit for them, they both howled. Worse than Willie's leotard outfit. Way more ridiculous, which again was the point. Now, the leotard outfit that Willie wore was a leopard costume. So remember, the theme of this party was uh, native and colonial. So William kind of took a, a, took a, a safe option avoided being a Nazi and just went as a leopard. Uh, This whole thing is so ridiculous that they were figuring out what to wear to a party with the native and colonial theme. But it's not surprising because William himself had an out of Africa themed party. So the royals are just, you know, they have no awareness whatsoever. But what's really funny is that I actually, we can link to this, but I actually wrote some fake diary entries back in 2005 when this happened. And I pretended to be Harry uh, trying to figure out his costume. And, uh, it's pretty good. I, I linked to a lot of racist things that the royal family did, but uh, I had him considering like going as as various uh, offensive things. Like I think he actually wanted. I was looking for the links, but they've been removed because they're so old. But I think he wanted to go as a Zulu originally. Well, what's funny about that is now he paints himself as a humanitarian who goes to Africa on right. relief missions and cares so much about the African continent. But look, you know him being denied 
that pilot costume going as a Nazi instead. He didn't forget that because then he went to Afghanistan and made up for it by killing You're and bragging right. about 25 Afghans. So yeah, it all worked out for Harry and it his uh, Harry. and his pilot dreams. I mean, I'm torn because part of me feels like as an older brother, you should really tell your younger brother like to lean into the pilot and lean away from the Nazi thing. Yeah. Then again, yeah. Harry was 20 years old. He probably should have known that uh, going up as a Nazi to any party would be uh, maybe a bad press press moment. Oh, he, he was, was 20 imagined? years old. He was 20 years old. He's blaming his. Oh, I, I figured yeah. he was younger than that. Oh, no, wow. Okay. 20, yeah. 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 He still hadn't learned that the Nazis were bad, I guess. Yeah. Well, listen, jury's still out on whether or not we need to be having this uh, royal family acting as the titular head of state for the UK, where they enjoy, you know, a multi-billion dollar fortune and get worshipped everywhere and get so much attention. You know, uh, jury's still out on whether or not that's healthy or not, because look yeah. at the great people it produces right. and the, the positive contributions they give to society. Yeah. Shame on you, William. Just kidding. Shame on you, Harry. We're really excited to bring on Shahid Buttar. He's an advocate, artist, lawyer, organizer, and he won 81,000 votes in 2020 to serve San Francisco in Congress. He challenged, of course, Nancy Pelosi. So let's talk to Shahid. Welcome, Shahid. Thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Always great to be with you, Katie. Thanks. So I wanted to have you on to talk about a few things, but let's start off with your piece, your recent piece that you have at your uh, Substack, and your Substack is shahidbutar.substack. Uh, it's called Responses to Populism Show Why Democrats Are Failing. So talk us through that piece. Basically, it's a reflection on McCarthy's election as the speaker of the new G incoming GOP majority and what progressives could stand to learn from the relative success of populists in the GOP that they have yet to replicate in the Democratic Party. And there's sort of two layers to this. There's the first layer, which I've heard some voices articulate gratefully. I link in the Substack piece to an interview that Brianna Joy Gray had done with Thomas Frank. And you know, that sort of bites off this layer of sort of reviewing the force the vote moment and noting that GOP populists were willing to challenge their party's leadership at a critical point of accountability the election of a new speaker, and that they were able to wrangle some pretty major concessions from McCarthy that progressives in the Democratic Party, populists in the Democratic Party, have never even sought from the corporate party leadership to whom they've been decidedly deferential. And that contrast is one sort of theme in the piece. There's another part of that in the Substack that I get into that I think extends that analysis and locates it, particularly in the context of abdications of constitutional responsibilities. I mean, this is what drove me to run for Congress was watching Democrats just completely abandon any pretense of holding the Pentagon, the military industrial complex, the domestic intelligence agencies accountable for their serial, longstanding, continuing violations and mass of civil rights and civil liberties. And that constitutional failure by Democrats created a political attack surface that the GOP has successfully exploited. And, you know, that's sort of one among, there are other dimensions of sort of the, the impact of the co-optation that I observe in the piece, but I'm basically just noting, again, what progressives and populists on the left could learn from populists on the right, who've been so much more spectacularly successful, I think driven because they've been so much more assertive uh, in advancing their goals than progressives have. What are some of those lessons and takeaways that they could apply? Well, the very first is that assertion creates opportunities, whereas deference predictably resigns them. When this, the force the vote moment, just to, you know, sort of put this back on the table, this was fall 2020. I remember it very well because I was on the ballot uh, in the general election in San Francisco. And this was uh, yet one among many cycles where Pelosi was uh, claiming the speakership and sort of forcing voices in the Democratic Party to support her. Various uh, carrots and sticks many related to fundraising and uh, opportunities to gain support from the party that members would lose if they were to stand up against her. At the time, the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, had a uh, blacklist policy, meaning that if anybody ran against an incumbent or supported a challenger to them, that they would basically be ineligible for any future work with the party. So all that sort of going on in the mix. And 
this new voices in Congress that people were looking to for some leadership, I think, ideologically, uh, voices supporting long suppressed policy goals like universal health care, like climate justice, uh, those voices, instead of challenging the party leadership to require, for instance, a vote on Medicare for all as a condition of supporting the speakership, progressives declined to do that. Uh, they sort of went along without a peep. And just to extend that, it wasn't that just that moment. I think a lot of people have focused on the force of the vote moment in the wake of McCarthy's selection as the speaker. But, you know, just to lay some sauce on that pasta, the deference of progressives in Congress to the corporate party leadership has been consistent and entirely unfortunate. It brings me no joy to observe this. Uh, you know, for years, frankly, I avoided criticizing the squad because my goal at the time, I was working to join them and try to strengthen their hand. And having witnessed this deference time after time from one issue to another, you know, one has to wonder at some point whether it's their hands that need strengthening or instead their spines. And that's part of why I wrote that Substack piece, is to make explicit the opportunity to extract concessions from the corporate leadership of the party if support is withheld at these critical moments of potential accountability. What do you think prevents them from doing what these rebellious Republicans just did? I heard Rokana being interviewed by Ryan Grimm, and Rokana said something to the effect of, we're trying to be constructive. These Republicans just want to blow everything up. And even if that's true of the Republicans, they had concrete demands. And the point is here that they used their leverage to achieve them. So why do you think it is that these progressives refuse to do the same for their own demands, not for Republican demands, but for progressive demands? You know, when I was trying to be uh, de deferential myself to people who I had hoped to join, my narrative may have been something like this. I think they're biding their time. I think they're looking for opportunities to, in Rose's words, you know, be constructive and, and find through other channels opportunities for their goals to find expression. But, you know, I it does stretch credulity, again, to bend that far over backward to explain what ultimately I think I would locate either as timidity or intimidation. They're flip sides of a coin, and it is the timidity of the progressives aligned with the intimidation and the various tactics used by the corporate center to force compliance. And they are mm -hmm. legion. Seats on committees are legendarily awarded to people who toe the party line. Uh, opportunities for visibility. If, you know, you, let's say you support a bill, is your name going to be attached to it or not? That's a function very largely on whether or not the leadership of the party likes you. Uh, and there are lots of ways that party leaders can marginalize members of Congress, and many members are unwilling to face that kind of heat, ultimately. But Shaha, what's crazy, what's crazy, they didn't even get any committee seats. AOC was removed from the committee she wanted to join. Same thing happened to Katie Porter as well. So they're not even getting those scraps. Thank you. It's not even working what they're doing. Exactly. And and, and when the, uh, the example of AOC being denied the Committee on Energy and Commerce, it's a perfect example. If I can riff on that for a second. You know, first, that's the that's the committee that would have been the critical one to develop the legislation that would effectuate the Green New Deal. Right. Yeah. If the Green New Deal is ever to be a reality, we need advocates for it on that particular committee. And who did Pelosi put on that committee instead of AOC? The person she put on that committee was Kathleen Rice, who didn't even support Pelosi like AOC did <laughs> at the time that she was up for speaker. So you literally have progressive populists in Congress deferring to the corporate party leadership in order to try to curry favor, not only not getting the scraps, but getting put in line behind the people who do openly challenge the speaker. And... I mean, it's farcical, right? And I, I live in a state that happens at the moment to be besieged by the very predictable consequences of ignoring a global climate catastrophe that Washington has been engineering for decades. And, you know, from the flooding across the state, and I don't think, frankly, we've seen even the half of it when the snowmelt in the Sierra hits the low-lying parts of the state, these floods are going to get 10 times worse. And, you know, this is in a state that's been ravaged by drought and wildfire repeatedly now for years. And this is just one state and a nation of 50, every one of which is grappling with this, and it's only going to get worse. And these very same dynamics of deference to institutional leadership by populist voices who go to Washington, initially very inspired by sets of principles that they, for whatever reason, seem to be unwilling or unable to stand behind when push comes to shove. 
I think that pattern explains a great many things, unfortunately, from the climate catastrophe to the constitutional crisis to, you know, the steady erosion of our democracy that continues under our feet. I do think that one difference, and I'm not, I, I think I agree with all that you're saying. And I think that it's inexcusable what the squad has been doing or not doing in most cases. But one thing that I think makes it not totally parallel is the fact that the Republicans have less to lose in a way because they are fine with blowing everything up. Mm -hmm. Um, in a way that Democrats don't. I mean, Republicans are fine shutting down the government. They kind of are in the business, they're in the business of government while in some ways not believing in government. Um, so how do you, what types of things could the squad do? Uh, what's your advice for the squad given that differential? So the very first thing we have to distinguish is blowing up the government as it were versus challenging the careers of particular party officials. And to withhold support for Pelosi in the fall of 2020 in no way risks the stability of government, right? And I don't want to say that Roe is being a little too flippant with his uh, remark. I would have loved to see Ryan come back with a follow-up question to, to, to press him on this point a little bit. But it is uh, it's certainly true that the GOP populist voices have a sort of nihilistic view about government. And so there's a limit to how much we can learn from their machinations. At the same time, for progressives to withhold votes from a contested speaker election in order to, or even better yet, running an alternative of their own. You know, Barbara Lee was interested in being the speaker right. of the House of the House at one point. And if the Progressive Caucus, to focus on the squad, I think is kind of unfair because I think the entire Progressive Caucus, you know, one could lay all these dynamics at their feet sure. too, like a much bigger body. You know, everyone in the Progressive Caucus could have supported a challenge to Pelosi, which would have done, and they could have said, we'll, we'll throw your, your vote, uh, our vote behind you for the speakership if we have hearings on this policy. Policy, for instance, like Medicare for all, favored by bipartisan majorities across the United States. And you know, I don't want to get too like trapped in the rabbit hole of Medicare for all, but it is worth noting in the middle of multiple pandemics that we are the only country in the industrialized world that refuses to acknowledge healthcare as a human right. And we not coincidentally happen to have by far the worst performance in public health responding to these pandemics. And you know, to say that we could have prevented hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, from dying or, or becoming ill is not an overstatement. Right. I mean, these are the predictable results of failures by policymakers. And they're not just failures by the policymakers who stand in the way. What we're observing here are failures by policymakers who claim to support these policies, who do such a piss poor job of advocating for their positions that they just, you know, resign their opportunities for influence when they're delivered to them on a plate. And, and to go back to, you know, a point we made before, I don't think it's entirely fair to blame the members of Congress who are timid because they are being actively intimidated by a corporate center. Uh, you know, you can see this even this week when Katie Porter announced her bid for the Senate seat. The way the corporate establishment responded to her, I think, is a perfect example of why people don't step out. If you challenge party leadership, you will face lies, smears any number of ad hominem attacks. I faced this myself. And, you know, it, it is a lot of people are timid. I'm not timid, right? Which is why they particularly needed to silence. But I've seen a lot of people who've made it to Washington demonstrate their timidity. I think ultimately, we should be laying the blame at the voices who are intimidating them. the very same corrupt insider trading self enriching millionaires who have been in Congress for decades, without ever being held accountable. And, you know, as long as we're on that theme, I think it's critical to note that the efforts to hold those people accountable run into lots of other headwinds. And here I'm particularly aware of just the bias in the journalism sphere, which I think, again, plays a role going back to your question, the dialogue between Roe and Ryan, the populace and the GOP, I think, are rightfully recognized as anti-democratic, not just party, but system of government. You know, there are many of them unrepentant fascists. On the left, we have many people who are somewhat repentant socialists, and it is the unwillingness mm -hmm. of voices on the left to stand by their own stated principles, fully throated, and to go to the mat when they're called on to stand up. I think that's the biggest difference uh, when we look at the left and the right. Um, and, and I think to, to claim that the nihilistic goals of the right render that principle invalid is, is a little too cute. You know, we, we can we can recognize the legitimacy and validity and effect, uh, effectiveness of the tactic. 
without embracing the nihilism and uh, mania of the substantive goal. Well, Shahid, let's talk about your experience when you tried to primary Nancy Pelosi. Now, obviously, when a progressive does that, they're going to face hostility from the traditional establishment. But you also face some hostility from people who consider themselves on the left. And I'm just wondering, you know, looking back on that now, your reflections on it. And, and for people who aren't familiar with what you went through, maybe uh, fill us in on, on what that was like. You know, if you have an oligarch with a position that has been unthreatened for decades, and I'm the only Democrat to have ever reached a general election challenging Nancy Pelosi for her seat in Congress, it is uh, easy to buy people off. And a lot of people got jobs, appointments, career opportunities for lying in public. And I remain amazed, frankly, to this point. I mean, the reason I'm not in politics anymore is precisely because I witnessed the corruption of journalism and the institutional racism of journalists in an area that prides itself on supposedly being progressive. Racism in the Bay Area has become, I think, increasingly visible in the time since I was subjected to what uh, Black journalists later described as a, quote, civic lynching, orchestrated to protect white capital from the only challenge in my city that it's ever faced, and that being from a Muslim immigrant. And the co-optation of many progressive voices from sitting uh, elected local leaders who continue to serve in office. Uh, Dean Preston comes to mind. He's like the Nuri Martinez of San Francisco. And I'm not the only person of color that he's a little on fire for his own craven racist purposes, but it's somebody whose racism goes entirely unobserved by local racist journalists who literally pat themselves on the back and hand out awards for patterns and practices of character assassination. You know, I'm, I'm one in a series of left-leaning voices of color in San Francisco that have been subjected to these ad hominem attacks. In the last few years alone, you know, Julian Davis was a black lawyer smeared, um, and this was the maybe not quite ten years ago, but it was it was his smearing that created the opportunity for Dean Preston, the racist who smeared me, to now be on our board of supervisors. That very same person, uh, and the very same people who smeared me then smeared a prominent Latino leader in the mission a year later. Uh, it's a it's straight out of the playbook in San Francisco. And I fear that it's straight out of the playbook everywhere. When Alex Morris challenged Richie Neal in Massachusetts, he faced homophobic smears. When Nina Turner challenged the establishment in Cleveland, she faced smears about being an angry black woman. In fact, there was a, I wrote a piece about this on Substack too. I have an ongoing series exploring racism among Democrats, particularly in California. There's a PR agency by the name of SKDK, whose clients include APAC, the American Israel Political Action Committee, Uh, DMFI, Democratic Majority for Israel, as well as the entire senior leadership of the Democratic Party. Aaron, you mentioned Ro Khanna's interview with Ryan Grimm. And I want to, in the context of your latest question, pull in something that Ryan wrote a few months ago. He wrote a pair of pieces last year uh, that were really revealing, both in the context of what he explored and what he, I think, strategically omitted. Uh, one was called Elephants in the Zoom, and the other one was called. Yeah, we had him on to talk about that. What was it called? Primary occupation, and and in the two pieces, uh, the first one, Ryan examines basically the pattern across the progressive left, of which I was a part. This pattern of ad hominem accusation, hamstringing organizations and campaigns, at a point in history where Ryan sort of describes as particularly crucial for progressive voices to be visible. And sort of this pattern of, you know, when I was being falsely accused, at the very same time, Andrew Cuomo has the leaders of the Me Too movement running interference to try to impede accountability for real problems that this powerful, white, wealthy office holder works complicit in. Don't get me talking about the president. Uh, you know, this pattern of voices of color being falsely accused while powerful white people are, you know, the carpet is paved. This, in fact, is a live issue in San Francisco right now, our new uh, president of our board of supervisors. Aaron Peskin is his name. He was elected after 17 rounds of voting. You might have thought that McCarthy's speakership was dramatic with the 15 rounds of voting in the House, right? It took 17 rounds of voting in the San Francisco Board of Supervisors this week to choose a new president of the board. He's sort of like a, it's the analogous position to the speakership is like the head of the local legislature. And, you know, this is someone who's had decades in office. He he has been the object of stories documenting everything from public drunkenness to berating city employees, members of his own staff, but somehow those are not concerns 
for white office holders. They're only concerns for voices on the left of color. And so the disparate attention paid um, to you know concerns that are ultimately ad hominem, the suppression of whistleblowers, of evidence, of conflicts of interest, the orchestration of narratives that serve establishment voices. These are unfortunately patterns across the American press. I, I just talked last night to a former congressional candidate in Los Angeles, David Kim. He faced all kinds of lies when he challenged uh, an entrenched Democratic incumbent there. And it's a pattern. You know, I, I see so much of the corporate Democratic uh, leadership's control over the party and Congress being effectuated through this pattern of false racist accusation supported by journalists that I think it plays ultimately an inevitable role in this intimidation pattern that we were talking about before. Why are populists on the left not standing up to the corporate leaders in their party the way populists on the right are within theirs? Well, one reason might be because on the left, whatever passes for it, you know, Democrats are so willing to punch down at people who call out corruption. And, and Malcolm X said at one point that if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you loving the people doing the oppressing and, and hating the people who are being oppressed. And you know, when I look at this pattern of you know, what happened to Nina, what happened to Alex, what happened to me, what happened to David, you know, candidates across the country who challenged corruption in the Democratic Party, uh, you know, were, our reputations were destroyed as a result. And I don't think that that was uh, strictly defensive. I mean, that was absolutely to send a signal. And, and, and again, the reason I'm not in politics is I witnessed the co-optation of journalists in that dynamic. There was a time in my life when I thought that journalism existed for transparency and accountability. And I've you know, unfortunately come to recognize much like law that careerism has subsumed the profession. You know, lawyers aren't particularly committed to their professional ethics. You can't be in a fascist country. Journalists aren't either. You know, so many people are willing to put their careers before their professional principles uh, from members of Congress to journalists to, you know, staff people who work for members of Congress or, or politicians. It's one reason I'm so grateful for voices like yours that are doing the work of, from an independent perspective, calling these dynamics out. And SKDK, of course, is Anita Dunn's um, PR firm, and she, uh, as you refer, as you mentioned, helped cover up uh, Andrew Cuomo's crimes. And of course, she advised Joe Biden while he was running. There's another SKDK principal by the name of Hillary Rosen who publicly apologized right. for characterizing Nina Turner as an angry black woman. And when you have PR exec, you know, there were PR executives in San Francisco who were spreading lies about me, they who were paying local journalists under the table to publish racist election disinformation. And, you know, these people run around giving each other awards afterward. I'm, I'm currently suing the San Francisco Chronicle in federal court under a well-established set of legal principles articulated in the New York Times versus Sullivan case for publishing both maliciously and with a reckless disregard for the truth, racist election disinformation. And when the papers of record are publishing disinformation, you know, a lot of people are concerned about disinformation in social media. I am too, but that's not the limit of the problem by any stretch. And, you know, access journalism is is one part of it. And even here, you know, it's worth noting that we're still only talking about half the problem in journalism. And at the same time that journalists are so quick to throw challengers to incumbents under the bus, they turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to longstanding visible corruption out in the open, right? I mean, it's 2023. It was just last year that people, any anyone, I think, seem to finally turn their attention to the conflicts of interest raised by congressional insider trading. It's never been okay. Like, how is that only a controversy now? And at the moment, there's no meaningful effort in Congress to do anything about it. There was last year when Pelosi needed support. But, you know, once she has the votes or Hakeem Jeffries has the votes, you know, at, at that point, nobody cares anymore about the need to at least look like you care about corruption. But this idea that members of Congress have been on the take for decades we're talking about a body of self-enriching millionaires who are putting the growth of their portfolios before the defense of the public interest. And that too is visible in policy areas from the climate catastrophe to healthcare to war and militarism. And it's not like that was ever okay. And, and why did journalists finally show up for that in 2022? I mean, I've been pounding that drum since I started running for Congress in 2018 and nobody seemed to care. And, and the deference of journalists to corruption alongside the quickness of their willingness to assassinate people who offer alternatives 
those two things together, in my mind, that's the shoal on which democracy crashes. Uh, I mean, yes, there's all this subsequent stuff where you have, you know, people in office as Democrats and then support Republican policies like President Biden and Title 42 at the border or the student debt relief policy or Nancy Pelosi and the Pago rules. Like there's all kinds of examples of people running for office while supporting policies of the other side. Uh, and, and that to me also is flagrant, open, unapologetic corruption enabled by newspaper editors, ultimately. And the choice of what to cover and what not to cover, I think, matters as much as the frames of reference and and, and the narratives that are employed. But all of it, ultimately, I see as just a, a ruse. And, and I think it's fair to say that America might be the most ignorant country in the world, despite being the, and perhaps because it is the best resource, you know, that we have so much information and so little insight. And that is not an individual problem. That is absolutely an institutional phenomenon. And you know, our democracy is eroding because of it. And also Hillary Rosen was at uh, Time's Up, ironically. Uh, she had to, I believe, leave Time's Up after it revealed that Time's Up was, which is supposed to help women deal with uh, Me Too, was uh, shielding uh, Harvey Weinstein as well as Andrew Cuomo. And what do you call it when when rich white women are defending powerful white men for doing things that they claim to care are problems while throwing brown people under the bus falsely for it? You know, I mean, that's as racist as that's not even like the racism that's supposed to be difficult to detect, like mass institutionalized slavery through the incarceration system. You know, that's that's the kind of racism that one is supposed to have to like squint to see. You know, this is like the obvious kind. And yet still, even in progressive strongholds, it's openly embraced. And, you know, I've come to be, frankly, revolted by the political culture of a city that I still love culturally. Um, you know, but San Francisco prides itself on a progressivism. And, you know, my, my principal data point to say that San Francisco is among the most racist cities in the United States is simply the three quarters of the black people have been removed in the last generation. And I don't think that's true in any other major city in our country. And, you know, yet San Franciscans will, will pride themselves on supposedly being progressive. And, you know, just the obliviousness of white people who are complicit in white supremacy to even recognizing the water in which they swim is, you know, I think it's another factor, frankly, when we talk about this intimidation of the populists on the left in Congress. I think this is part of it because you have, you know, remember there's this phase where AOC goes to the border and she's crying, looking at dark skinned people imprisoned in mass. As far as I know, it's the last time she went. Somehow the act, the the voices around that are much more muted now than they were at some point, right? I mean, the, and it's it's interesting to note that the squad is primarily members of Congress of color, right? Just like the Congressional Black Caucus, which was composed of relatively heroic young voices that went to Washington and then got co-opted by the very same corporate center that's now suppressing the next generation of voices of color that come in promising new alternatives to the failures of the voices that came before it. And, you know, I fear at the end of the day, maybe this is an additional answer to Aaron's question a while ago when you asked, like, what explains it? And we talked about timidity and intimidation. There's There might be a third answer to that, which is the alternative that is presented to them. And, and this has come up a lot, too, in the last year in different forms. But you remember the moment when AOC took a lot of heat for wearing the tax the rich dress to the Met mm -hmm. Gala? Yeah, I think when they got rolled, part of what I think Pelosi's pitch was, you know, you don't have to worry about governance. Just take celebrity instead. That the the opportunity to resign principled governance in favor of accepting basically celebrity, like that's how Pelosi governs, right? It's all political theater. She relies on the ignorance of the public and the complicity of the press to hide her record, right? This is somebody who's literally never defended her record in public in the 35 years that she's been in office. She could not defend her record against an informed critique, which is why they had to smear me instead of letting her show up for her debate, right? And and similarly, I think that what she's counseled the squad members to do is, you know, you can do things like say you're present when the Iron Dome comes up for a vote and get away with it as long as you do these performative things that can give you a reason to go to your supporters and raise money from them. And that's the MO in Congress. That's what most of them do. When you look at the populace on, on the right, the thing that's kind of amazing is that, you know, they could all cash out and do something similar, but apparently they are so committed to their nihilistic vision of fascism that they're willing to go to the mat. <laughs> go figure to effectuate it. And I do think there are lots of uh, carrots and sticks and, and the alternative to seek through celebrity, what they're unable to do through governance might be a carrot to some of them. 
And Shahid, let's talk about uh, your going back to kind of democratic um, silence over overreach. We have a video of you getting arrested. Could you set this up and then we'll, we'll play it? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. And again, if you want to read Shahid Buttar's work, you can go to his Substack at shahidbuttar.substack.com. And that's S-H-A-H-I-D-B-U-T-T-A-R. Yeah. And uh, I really like what he had to say about yeah. the state of progressive politics and Congress and how hard it is to break in, you know, yeah. even for someone who wants to be on the side of the squad, how difficult right. it is to actually get it done when you're someone who is... I think more uncompromising when it comes to having principles and it's just, there's like a huge barrier to getting into Washington when you are someone like Shahid. And so good to get his thoughts on, on what right. that's like. And also make sure you check out the Substack uh, at usefulidiots.substack.com because Shahid says some, I think really important and interesting things about how the left and right can work together and should work together. And he debunks some, I think kind of lazy arguments that we hear a lot from some on the left about how uh, doing anything with politicians on the right is enabling fascism. Hmm. And one thing that maybe we'll put into a blooper reel one day, and hopefully we can edit out uh, properly this week, but there was many moments during the interview when I was trying to say something, but I didn't realize I was muted. So <laughs> I started getting increasingly frustrated that nobody was listening to me. Really, the whole time I was just muted. So right. maybe that will turn up in a useful idiot's blooper reel one day. Yeah, we should do it. Let's do a little mashup <laughs> of it. Aaron frustrated constantly. <laughs> well, that speaks to what we talked about on um, Monday's call-in, where someone was muted, I think, on call-in, and we came up with the slogan, like, accept the mic, and how that was a metaphor for the left. Mm. That's there right. Yeah. Accept your microphone. And speaking of which, I've gotten some great recommendations for wellness experts that can come on useful idiots soon to talk oh, to us great. about dealing with stress and all the difficulties of being in this world. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be happening very soon. I have some great suggestions from some people who know the topic well. So we'll be having right. that very soon. Great. Speaking of expression, accepting yeah. mic expression. Yeah. Healthy expression. Yeah. yeah. See you next week. Bye, everybody. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.